Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Five... Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout, special episode this week, and we want to thank the Texas Tribune, because this is part of the Texas Tribune Festival for helping us put this together. Beto O'Rourke is our special guest. We recorded this conversation on September 25th and started with a question that's kind of a big deal in Texas right now. Could Joe Biden win there? What are Democratic prospects in that state? Hello and welcome to this version of the Texas Tribune Festival Conversation with me, Major Garrett, and our special guest, Beto O'Rourke. This is also going to be a part of my podcast known as The Takeout. For those of you who were part of the Texas Tribune Festival last year in person, we all fondly remember it. We were in the downtown theater. I was with Admiral McRaven. We did the whole show there. It was a great experience. Obviously, things are so very much different now. Beto O'Rourke is in his kitchen in El Paso. I'm in my apartment in Washington, D.C. Beto, it's great to talk to you. It's great to see you. I wish we could do this in person. I do as well. And, and, but nonetheless, thank you for doing it this way and very much looking forward to the conversation. So, Beto, I want to start uh, because I think there are some times when people in your position wonder what's going to come their way when there is a Beltway reporter on the other end of the conversation. And I want to give you an opportunity to pick any topic that you think in a conversation like this should be discussed, but you fear might not be discussed. So take it away. I really don't, Major, with you, I don't have any fears. I think um, I've I've actually listened to to your podcast um, heard your excellent interview with Julian Castro a, a month ago. Um, very prescient questions about Texas, given where we are now. Um, and that's, that's the thing that I think is most important, not just for your listeners, not just for the attendees of the Texas Tribune, but for the, the future, the fate, the fortune of this country. I, I think, I firmly believe, I almost know that this election for president is going to come down to Texas. And I'd love to share why I so strongly believe that by the numbers, by the feel, by the anecdote, by the data. And uh, and then they'll love to take your questions uh, about it. All right, then let's go. Uh, I've seen the polling data on your Twitter feed. It's obviously publicly available when you compare Romney's numbers, Trump's numbers, even before that, McCain's numbers in Texas at this state of the race. They are far closer. I don't need to tell you, the president beats his chest and says Texas isn't even going to be close. It's a huge myth. Why do you believe it's not a myth this time? Uh, 
When you, we'll, we'll start with the polls. Um, you, you look at just about every aggregate of the major polls over the last five or six weeks, and we're within a point or two between Biden and Trump in Texas. Now, hold on to that number and then know this. In 2018, in a midterm year, a cycle that typically favors Republican turnout over Democratic performance, we got within two and a half points of Ted Cruz and saw a lot of other really good things happen down ballot. 12 new state house seat pickups, two new congressional seat pickups, 17 African-American women elected to judicial positions in Harris County, home to Houston, Texas. But that two and a half that I was down to Cruz was six points better than every major poll showed on the eve of that election. And my point to you, Major, is that Texas, which has been 50th or 49th in voter turnout for so long, Texas, which is the epicenter of voter suppression and voter intimidation, primarily aimed at black voters and Latino voters, Texas is very hard to count. And Texas Democrats are almost always undercounted by a factor of five to six points. So whatever the public polling shows in the presidential race, whatever the private polls that the Biden team is looking at, which perhaps are, are more precise than what we are seeing publicly, it's really important to know that probably all of them are undercounting Democratic performance. So if we got within two and a half of Cruz in a midterm, here we are in a presidential election cycle that tends to boost Democratic performance at the expense of Republican turnout after an historic mismanagement of the deadliest pandemic to ever befall this country, at least since 1918, that has killed more than 15,000 of my fellow Texans, more than 200,000 of my fellow Americans. The worst recession since the Great Depression, twice as many Texans filed for unemployment in the first two months of this pandemic as did in all of 2019. And then Texas has borne the brunt of the cruelty of Donald Trump and those like John Cornyn and Greg Abbott who've enabled him. The kids in cages, the family separation, the 23 people murdered here in El Paso, Texas by a man inspired by Donald Trump who echoed his words in the manifesto that he published before that shooting. The show me your papers legislation uh, aimed at Latinos inspired by Donald Trump were a state with 5.6 million voters, Joe Biden to win with the polls this close with 38 electoral college votes on the line. It is this one. And, and here's my contention, Major. Th this is not a nice to win state. Wouldn't it be great if Texas came in for a Democrat for the first time in 44 years? I believe because of this president's willingness to operate above the law and outside of the Constitution, that he's warned all of us that he may not accept the results of this election. He may not guarantee a peaceful transition of power. It is an imperative that these 38 electoral college votes come in for Joe Biden. So no question is left open and no opportunity for the president to sow chaos and confusion about the results. So not only can we do this, we must do this. So there's math that's been communicated to me and I wanna run it by you Beto to see if it's remotely accurate because sometimes math that's conveyed to Beltway reporters isn't. But it goes like this, from the five major cities in Texas, if Democrats pull a net 1 million, they have a chance to win the state. Is that approximately correct? I, I think that's approximately correct, yes. You have- And uh, what- here, go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. 
And and if I if I if I remember correctly, the margin was about eight hundred thousand in in the in your race in twenty eighteen. So there's maybe two hundred thousand extra to find. Two hundred thousand margin margin was two hundred thousand votes that I two hundred fifteen thousand to be precise, by which I lost to Cruz. But but check this out. Since the the last presidential election, two thousand sixteen, more than one point five million Texans have registered to vote in an average four-year cycle, you'll have about 700,000 Texans registered to vote. So we are on a clip that is doubling past performance. In addition, Yadimas, over the last few months, an organization that I help run called Powered by People, driven by volunteers, has registered over 90,000 new Texans, likely Democrats. And those, I guarantee you, are not being counted in any of the polls or surveys that are being conducted. Uh, my contention is that this is Biden's to lose. And we're not going to wait for the Biden campaign to, to wake up to that reality. All of us in Texas, first and foremost, the Texas Democratic Party, uh, powered by people, these extraordinary state house candidates who are energizing and enlarging the electorate at, at the lowest, most important level on, on the ballot. They're gonna send voters up to the congressional races, to the US Senate race, MJ Hagar over John Cornyn, and all the way to, to Joe Biden. However, if the Biden campaign will, will respond to this opportunity, it will be catalytic in the impact on the electorate, on all those volunteers who are doing everything they can to make sure that we make the most of this opportunity. And especially at this moment to Latino voters and black voters in Texas, who through voter ID laws, racial gerrymandering, 750 polling place closures, lack of online voter registration, have been told in no uncertain terms that it is going to be harder for them to vote than it should be. If Joe Biden makes that same part of this electorate his primary focus in this state, um, he, he is going to send a message, not just to Texas, but to voters across the country that he's in this to win. Uh, that he's changing the dynamics and, in fact, the very map uh, that is being contested in, in this election. T Texas is that important and that significant to the national picture. You were kind enough to reference my takeout interview with Julian Castro, and you remember from that I said, would you get on the phone with Steve Reschetti or anyone else in the inner circle of the Biden campaign and say, invest in Texas? He said, absolutely. I hear you saying much the same thing, but I also hear you saying that they're sleeping on Texas in a way that is incautious and counterproductive, true? True, um, and, and I remember your question to Secretary Castro, you said, you know, uh, if you had to take money out of Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Florida and put it in Texas, would you advise them to do that? And it's a tough question to answer, right? Because you never wanna discount or diminish the investment in any state. But at some point you're, you're working with a fixed amount of money and it's a zero sum decision. And my answer to that is yes. Will the next marginal $15 million spent in Wisconsin, in Florida, in Pennsylvania, how much more of a difference will that make? You are spending close to zero functionally in Texas right now, Biden campaign, as did the Clinton campaign, as did the Kerry campaign, as did almost every presidential nominees campaign in, in Texas. If, if you were to make a real play in here, after a play has not been made for three decades, I cannot tell you how energizing that will be, how shocking that will be, not just in a positive way to Democrats in Texas, but it will get inside the head of, of Donald Trump. 
Uh, right now, I see a, a fairly conventional map, and I understand why, because you don't want to take Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, et cetera, for granted. And, and Biden and, and Harris by no means are doing that. And I'm really impressed with the campaigns that they are running there. But please, by, by all means, expand this map and show us that we here in Texas are important to you. We will respond in kind and turn out like you've never seen us turn out. When, Major, when I, when I traveled to 254 counties in 2018, I went everywhere, told, told the folks of Texas, no one will be taken for granted. No one will be written off. And I will prove it to you by, by showing up. We produced the largest voter turnout in a midterm election in this state since 1970, two years before I was born. Uh, so, so this works and, and they can do it. And there's still time, right? We, we've got uh, you know, a little over two weeks before the first ballots are cast in early voting in Texas on October 13th. But that window is closing and it's closing quickly. And if they're gonna act, they've gotta do it now. More broadly, do you think something is going on in Georgia, Texas that has already happened in New Mexico and to a certain degree in Colorado? That is to say, these plates that used to be reliably red are becoming purple and then bluer? Do you think that is something that is moving throughout that region of the country? I do. And, and here's one stark difference that stands out to me, Major. Um, neither Colorado nor New Mexico were in the Confederacy. Um, neither of them were the targets of the 1965 Voting Rights Act signed by Lyndon Baines Johnson, inspired by the recently departed Congressman John Lewis. Um, neither of those two states have to contend with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and the Shelby decision in 2013, uh, the, the decision that inspired the fiery dissent from Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, who talked about not putting away the umbrella because it's kept you dry in the middle of, of a rainstorm. We, we're in a rainstorm of voter suppression and voter intimidation in the two states that you mentioned in the South, Texas and Georgia. In fact, I, I just spoke to Stacey Abrams yesterday. Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia right now, but for the voter suppression tactics that included taking hundreds of thousands of voters off the rolls in that state. You know, in, in Texas, I, I gave you the litany earlier uh, of all the tactics being used right now that are part of a 144 year history of, of suppressing and by statute excluding the votes of black and, and Latino voters in our state. So, so that's the big difference, but the electorate is here the energy is, is growing. Uh, and I think there's, there's a more sophisticated, intentional approach from the state party, from organizations like mine to go find voters where they are, to register those eligible voters who have not gotten in the game, and to make sure that we are protecting their right to cast that ballot at a time that it is being contested on every front, whether it's the, the mails being slowed down by the president, um, his call to activate 50,000 quote unquote poll watchers who we know from American history very often are there to intimidate voters from, from casting their ballots. I, I think you're gonna see a very vigorous, effective response to all that in Georgia and in Texas, which again helps to make the case as to why both those states are now in play. So we are somewhat disabled in the recording time of this conversation. It's on a Friday. It will become available to the Texas Tribune Festival on Monday. I don't need to tell you, Beto, that the president is all likelihood going to announce a Supreme Court pick on Saturday. 
And I don't want us to get too deeply into that by name or anything like that, because we're trapped in a sort of a news environment that works against that. But I'm sure you have 30,000 foot thoughts on what's at stake right now. And more importantly for me, I'm curious what you think about the galvanizing effect of this moment. Republicans believe this is an energizing moment and the speed with which they pursue this will energize and improve their political prospects. I'm not so sure about that. It feels to me as if it could have as much a motivating factor among Democrats and possibly more so. I think you're right. And, and I also agree with your assessment of where the conven conventional wisdom was prior to the passing of Justice Ginsburg and, and the response that her passing um, generated amongst Democrats, amongst Americans, frankly, of, uh, of all backgrounds. I mean, warning the, 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 the passing of an extraordinary American um, and, and also um, the, the anxiety, um, the understanding that, that this will potentially produce a, um, a, a series of decisions um, that might be very hard for us to come back from. There are the obvious policy issues and constitutional issues of a woman's right to make her own decisions about her own body, of the ability to ensure that every American can see a doctor. And, and I say this from the perspective of a state that is the least insured in the United States of America. Uh, one where the, the largest provider of mental health care services is the county jail system. Very likely that the next Supreme Court will decide the issues of the ACA or the successor to the Affordable Care Act. You have issues of voting rights. And, and again, it's one of the things that we, we remember Justice Ginsburg most for is that dissent in Shelby uh, laying out the stakes of what it means to, to tear apart the protection for voters specifically black voters and Latino voters in states like Texas and in states like Georgia. So, so the very viability of our democracy is at stake. And then there's the fact that this is all happening uh, with weeks to go before the most important election since 1864 in this country's history is decided. And against the conventional wisdom, it, it has sparked um, a, a, an outpouring of activity uh, and not just folks showing up on the steps of the Supreme Court uh, or the, the federal courthouse here in El Paso, as Amy and I uh, went to and, and joined many, many folks here last weekend. It's also people signing up for these phone banks that we're doing, these voter registration drives that we're conduct conducting, um, these get out the vote efforts that we are overseeing here, here in Texas. The, the desire to do more than just register, vote, retweet and donate and actually get in the game and do the tough, hard grind of calling complete strangers who may be eating dinner and don't want to talk to you, who may have already decided they're voting for Donald Trump, um, who, who may not want to take your call, but you get past all of that and you connect with that person who, who didn't quite understand the stakes in this election or didn't know where they were supposed to vote or didn't realize there was still 10 days left to register to vote. All of that makes it worth it. And I'm, I'm learning that there are so many people who want to do that work right now. So th that's, the, that's the, the positive upshot of this moment. And unlike 2018, where on the eve of that important midterm election, you know, many pollsters have concluded, and I listened to an interview with Nate Cohn the other day, uh, that, you know, that, that fight hurt Democrats and energized Republicans and, and perhaps decided contests in Georgia and in, and in Texas in, in, the, in the Republicans' favor, I think perhaps the opposite 
is is happening right now. That that's my anecdotal take based on the evidence I've seen here in Texas. So you may not know this, but my first job for pay in journalism was in Amarillo, Texas. Started in 1984, was there for two years. And then I worked at the Houston Post, may it rest in peace, for two years before I came to Washington. And so that part of my career, I was sort of a witness to this transition in Texas politics away from the hegemony of the Democratic Party to the new hegemony of the Republican Party. And it now feels like a 10-year project from you and others to create a much more visible, active Democratic Party. And I'd like for those who are not Texans in this audience, and I know there will be many, I'll give you a second to describe what that work has been like for that period of time, eight to 10 years, and how much different things are now than they were when things were at their nadir. Yeah. For me, at least, it started in, in 2017 when I hit the road from El Paso, Texas, as a, in, in the rest of the state, a relatively unknown congressman with a name ID in Texas of, of around one to two percent, running against the sitting junior U.S. senator who had almost successfully contested the Republican nomination, um, you know, the, the, the prior year. And the first stop major for, for me was in Lubbock, Texas. And, you know, I don't know when Lubbock last elected a, a Democrat countywide or last sent their votes to the, the presidential nominee or the Democratic U.S. Senate nominee. But I wanted to go to Lubbock, one, because it was relatively close in Texas terms, like a five, five hour drive from El Paso. Um, and two, because that's a part of the state where Democrats for so long have feared to tread that Republicans don't have a natural competitor in the wild. And they waltz right into that general election in November without really ever having to contest their record or demonstrate any level of accountability. Those folks are functionally unrepresented. My next stop was in Amarillo, Texas, and then from there to, to Boys Ranch, Dalhart, um, over to Pampa, where Woody Guthrie bought his first guitar. And, and ultimately, I made my way to King County, which in 2016 voted for Donald Trump 96%, that county did. And I wanted to show up to make sure they understood that uh, I'm not writing them off and I'm not taking them for granted. And I have no hope of earning their vote or effectively representing them if I have not shown up first. And in all of these places, Major, it, it became very clear to me that, that showing up is a demonstration of respect. Showing up is perhaps the only way you have a chance of, of, of earning that vote. And, and showing up is the only way Democrats over the long term have any prospect of winning Texas. And I'll, I'll give you one anecdote that to me proved the point. I was in Silverton, Texas, and I was talking about to this group of about 25 people who'd assembled in the public library in Silverton, talking about the need to invest in rural broadband internet. About 50% of rural Texas can't get online to look for a job or start a business or finish their education or, or find a date on, on Tinder. And it is holding those communities back. And before I can you know, kind of deliver my punchline on the deal, this gentleman stands up and he said, I, I got to interrupt you, Beto. I was in first grade in 1937 here in Silverton, Texas, when then Congressman Lyndon Baines Johnson and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, through the Rural Electrification Administration, met us halfway. They didn't give us a handout. They didn't do everything for us. But they said, look, folks, if you as a community are willing to invest, we will meet you halfway and we will help to electrify this community. And he said, Beto, you don't know how it felt to be in first grade and to read by electric light 
that night, just like the kids were doing in Dallas, in New York, in London, and in Tokyo. I, I finally felt like I mattered to my government. And the kicker from him was, he says, my daddy was a yellow dog Democrat every day since then. So when, when we show up for people, um, the, the message is received and, and they show up for us. And, and by that same token, you've also got to show up in the reliably democratic communities and counties. Um, these places in the Rio Grande Valley that are 95% Mexican-American that Democrats, frankly, have just taken for granted. Oh, we can count on your vote, you're Mexican-American, or in the third ward of Houston, you're, you're Black, you're going to vote for Democrats. I won't bother show, showing up, and I'm just going to go after that mythical suburban housewife as though that's the whole game. You, you've got to show up literally for everyone, and it is it is brutal to do that in a state as big as Texas with 254 counties and 30 million people, but it is essential to do that in Texas. And if this stuff were easy, this state would be blue by now. But, but you're right, that project has begun. I think other candidates get that. And, and you see us contesting in these state house districts across the board in Texas, in some cases in races that last saw a Democrat 20 years ago. So something's definitely different in Texas today. And for the youngsters who may not know, what's Yellow Dog Democrat? Yellow Dog Democrat is, I, I would vote for a yellow dog if, if that dog were on the ballot versus the, the Republican. I'm, I'm with you all, all the way, because you've been with us all the way. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout, part of the Texas Tribune Festival this week. Our guest, Beto O'Rourke. More of that conversation in just a second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back. We thank you for joining us. I'm Major Garrett. Our special guest, Beta O'Rourke, part of the Texas Tribune Festival. Again, a quick reminder, we recorded this September 25th. In Texas, the governor now is saying, you know, case rates are down, hospitalizations are down, deaths as a percentage of cases are down. He is describing, if I get it correctly, Texas as a kind of success story. It didn't feel that way to the rest of the country watching Texas's post-Memorial Day experience. What do you think could have been done differently, should have been done differently, and is it the governor's fault or is it the president's fault? Major, what you just described that, that Governor Abbott has said and claimed in, in victory is very much akin to, to George W. Bush on that aircraft carrier with the Mission Accomplished banner behind him. 15,000, uh, actually uh, 15,423 of my fellow Texans are now dead because of Governor Greg Abbott and President Donald Trump. And those deaths have not been borne equally by all families and all communities and all people in Texas. They have disproportionately decimated the Latino community, uh, the African-American community and the Native American community in, in Texas. To, to put a point on it, you, you go down to Cameron and Hidalgo and Star Counties in the Rio Grande Valley, counties that are 90 to 95% Mexican-American. And because the governor would not allow those county judges to save the lives of the constituents that they were sworn to serve and protect by implementing a stay-at-home order, so many died so quickly 
that they ran out of room in the morgues and the funeral homes, and they were stacking the dead bodies in refrigerated FEMA trucks. Here in El Paso, Texas, an 85% Mexican-American community. Uh, I'm talking to the surviving family members of Sarah Montoya, 43 years old, died of COVID. Uh, Daniel Morales, a nurse, 39 years old, was treating COVID patients, father of four, he is now dead. Um, we've got to connect the dots. This was not uh, simply an, an act of, of, of nature. Um, this didn't just happen to us. Decisions were made. Decisions were made not to have people stay at home, not to implement a, a mask order in time, to provide exemptions when that mask order was implemented, and not to allow the kind of local control that Republicans so often talk about. And at the moment that local control, allowing the county judge in Harris County or in Starr County to do what they needed to do to save the lives of their constituents at, at a time that local control was literally a life and death matter. Our governor did absolutely nothing, um, compounding the failure in leadership from a president who presides over a country that represents about 4% of the globe's population and is now 22 to 23% of the globe's deaths. The, the, the most powerful, the wealthiest, the most medically advanced country on planet Earth in the history of planet Earth. Nothing else explains this but the monumental failure in leadership that we have all witnessed. On my program, The Takeout, many, many, many weeks ago, I talked to Steve Adler, the mayor of Austin, who I'm sure you know somewhat well. And he, at the time, was clashing with Governor Abbott over this very jurisdictional issue. Can the local governments impose or make very strong recommendations about mask wearing? And the governor said, you can't do that. And we know we Texans and the rest of the country have seen what happened in the aftermath of those kinds of decisions or anti-decisions, if you will. And I'm wondering what you think, Beto, about this conversation our country had. It's my belief that five years or 10 years from now, when people start to discuss this, those who were not here will not believe, they will consider it almost satirical that we had a prolonged political conversation in this country about wearing masks. I, I agree with you. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to come to a conclusion other than the, the answer to that is, is leadership. And you and I could both recite example after example of, of presidential leadership, of modeling the service, the sacrifice, so that the rest of the country knows that it's okay and in fact that it's the right thing, in fact it's the expected thing for you to do. And for our president and, and our governor um, to turn their backs on the facts, the truth, the science, the best medical and public health advice, and openly mock, as, as our governor did, those counties that try to impose mask orders initially, uh, to have our president um, absolutely dismiss the science that it, it now turns out, we learned from, from Bob Woodward's book, he actually knew and had internalized but was going to say the exact opposite. In English, we call that a lie. Uh, at, at not just the detriment, but to the deaths of, of tens of thousands of our fellow Americans, and, and again, more than 15,000 of, of our fellow Texans. I don't know, and I think about this all the time because my kids are in eighth and seventh and, and fourth grade and they're doing their distance learning literally in the other room from me right now. I think about what those same history books are, are going to be saying 20, 30, 40, 100, 500 years from now. Will the people of the future believe that 2020 actually happened? Um, be, because there is no logical, rational sense to the response so far from those in positions of, of public trust and power 
at, at, the, at the highest levels in, in, in the governor's mansion and in the White House in this country. But there is an answer to that, and, and it is all of us. And it is these heroic local leaders who nonetheless are trying to do the right thing. It's these doctors and nurses, and again, you know, quoting from your podcast, you know, those frontline workers, and, and we, we shouldn't mystify them as some kind of heroes. Very often in a state like mine, where the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, you have no choice but to go to that Walgreens pharmacy and work your shift, knowing full well that you might be taking your life or the life of your grandmother in your hands when you go and, and do that. And to have a lieutenant governor, which you may know, Major, in, in the Texas Constitution, uh, is actually arguably the most powerful elected figure in the state, to have him go on Fox News and say there are more important things than living, uh, open the state, knowing full well who's going to be on the front lines of the opening, begs the question, who did he expect to do the dying? Um, so, so no, I don't know that the future will believe the, the, the current moment, but, but we have an obligation to those generations to get it right in the remaining days, the 39 days before this election takes place, and make sure that we change out those who are in positions of power right now. Democratic nominee Joe Biden has struggled with the concept of whether or not, if, if he were president, he would impose or seek to impose a national mask mandate. Do you believe that is constitutional? Do you believe it's practicable? Or do you believe that must fall under the category of modeling behavior? I think it is all of the, the above. So, so yes, he should do it. Yes, I think it's constitutional. I mean, we, we are now over 200,000 deaths. Um, arguably still in, 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 in the first wave of this, because in many places, Texas is a prime example. Um, the, the rate of transmission never really stopped growing. We, we never had a positivity rate fall below 1%. In fact, we actually don't know what the real positivity rate is because we've done such a terrible job uh, of testing. There's no national contact tracing program. There's no state level contact tracing program. Of, of which to, to speak, there's literally no strategy right now. And so ensuring that at a minimum, that, that frontline Walgreens cashier that I just mentioned, that she's protected when she's selling you the, the, you know, um, the, the soap and, and Rolos and shaving cream that, that you bought uh, when, when you walked in because you have to wear a mask. I think that is the, 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 the least we could ask of you. And you should do that of your own accord and, and of your own imperative. But if you're not, I wanna make sure that the full force of the law is going to guarantee that you do. But, but you, you just pointed out what, what the other great difference will be in, in Biden and Trump in terms of this issue of the mask. And that is that Biden has warned that every single day that the science became clear that it's important to do so. In fact, I just saw a picture of him before uh, we began this interview He's sitting next to Dr. Biden, uh, and they're right in front of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body as it lays in state in the U.S. Capitol, both of them wearing masks, both of them modeling the behavior we should see from every American right now. Do you trust and should your fellow Texans trust Operation Warp Speed when it comes to a vaccine for this virus? Look, I, I want President Trump and the Trump administration to be as successful as possible in developing a vaccine because their success in this endeavor is our success as a country and, and we will successfully save lives going forward. So um, all the luck in the world to them, give them all the support that, that we possibly can. The, the challenge, as you know, is that when you have a president who so routinely lies about the most important things, and we talked about 
at, at the very outset of this pandemic, I believe it was in February, an interview with Bob Woodward, where the president pretty articulately describes just how deadly coronavirus is. And then that same day and in the days following, absolutely discounts and dismisses and diminishes the threat to the American public, encouraging people to go out without masks and to gather in mass in these rallies that he had in Tulsa as recently as June 20th uh, of this year, months and months after that interview uh, with Woodward. So who the hell knows what to believe from Donald Trump and from those who are complicit and enable the, the lies, uh, the lack of transparency and the absolute confusion and chaos that he has created. So my, you know, my hopes are there. Um, I know that we have um, just some of the all-time best scientists uh, in, in the world working on this right now. Um, I just hope that despite Donald Trump, they can be successful. The last time you and I spoke, Beto, I was substituting for Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. It was the horrible, horrible Sunday morning after the mass shooting in El Paso. In between that interview, obviously you ran for president. You had a electrifying moment on stage talking about AR-15s and the like. It was written then around that debate performance that you possibly had changed the debate in this country or within the Democratic Party on firearms legislation and regulation. Did you? I don't think I did. Um, I certainly gave voice to what a lot of people were thinking, but perhaps too scared to say out loud and in public, and certainly if they were running for office, because the NRA has so successfully defined the terms of the debate, not just for Republicans, not just for gun owners, but, but for everyone, for, for this country. And, and less me and more organizations like Brady, Moms Demand, and March for Our Lives, and, and Gabby Giffords, and all of their volunteers, they've busted through um, the, the, the self-imposed walls of our public discourse on guns and are willing to have these really frank conversations. Should someone be able to own a weapon that was originally designed, engineered, and sold to the militaries of the world because it is just so effective and efficient at killing people, and not just in terms of the rate of fire, but that high impact, high velocity round that just shreds everything inside of you. And, and I've visited so many of those victims from the August 3rd shooting in El Paso and so many of the surviving family members who lost someone. And to hear about one round tearing through your kidney, your spleen, your stomach, your intestine in three places and just shredding everything that keeps you alive, um, makes me understand that if it's not designed for hunting, if it's not designed for self-defense in your home, we have no business having those weapons in our streets, in our country, in, in our communities. And since then, Major, when, when I see white men, very many of them white nationalist terrorists dressed for battle with weapons of war, who are not just carrying them around and parading with them for the Second Amendment, if that's why they were ever there in the first place, but are seeking to intimidate lawmakers going on to the, the balcony of the State House in Michigan with those guns uh, to intimidate lawmakers with the threat of force and violence and potentially death to try to compel them to vote a certain way or against uh, another way. I, I think that is terrorism by another name. You do not have to kill someone to seek to terrify them into doing the political objective that you could not achieve at the ballot box. And, and given the fact that uh, within the last 24 hours, Major, uh, or 48 hours, the president has 
refused to commit to a peaceful transition of power. The same president who encouraged these white nationalist terrorists to liberate their, their state capitals um, in Virginia and Michigan, in, in other states. I think it's coming home to us that, that this is incredibly dangerous. And I think many people, myself included, wish that we had said what I said on that debate stage in Houston many years earlier, because we really got ourselves into a very, very dangerous situation right now. In the minute 45 we have left, Beto, I want to ask you how genuinely afraid you are, having said what you just said about an election that could be contested, a president who has been ambivalent to be charitable, possibly much worse, about whether he would accept a peaceful transfer of power and vigilantism, which we have seen in the last six months in this country. I'm not afraid, but I am very, very focused and very, very determined. And the object of, of my focus is Texas. I, you know, my understanding of Pennsylvania, which is one of these traditional contested battleground states where, where both candidates are pouring a ton of money, is they don't begin counting the mail-in ballots, which will be the largest mail-in ballot load they've ever seen at the time that the U.S. Postal Service under orders of Donald Trump is slowing down the delivery of that mail. They don't begin counting those ballots till the, the last in-person ballot is cast on November 3rd. We may not know for weeks in, in Pennsylvania. If Texas, with a much smaller mail-in ballot universe, because our state declined to expand it, if Texas comes in on November 3rd for Joe Biden, there is no close contest for the president to exploit to his own advantage. There, there is no chaos or confusion that he can create, regardless of whether he accepts it or not, the rest of the country will be forced to. And Texas, and Texas alone, it's the singular opportunity, closes the, the chapter on, on Donald Trump and Trumpism and begins the next necessary new one for this country. That's why I, I just so strongly believe that it wouldn't be nice for us to win Texas, we absolutely must win Texas. And so I, I won't fear anything while I still have time to, to give to ensuring that we win Texas. That's gonna be my focus. That is the voice of Beto O'Rourke. My thanks to the Texas Tribune Festival, Evan Smith, one of my heroes in American journalism. Beto, it's been great to have a conversation with you. This will also be on my show, The Takeout, but it'll be first at the Texas Tribune Festival. Beto, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope to see you again soon. I do too. Pleasure was mine. Thank you for doing this. And that's it for our conversation with Beto O'Rourke. Our thanks to the Texas Tribune and the Texas Tribune Festival, Evan Smith, for making this opportunity available to us. We hope you enjoyed it. A couple of things have happened since this conversation. Obviously, the Supreme Court nominee is Amy Coney Barrett. That process is moving forward. There was a presidential debate. Maybe you saw it. Maybe you heard or read something about it. There will be more debates. The candidates are going to show up. Will the rules be changed? In all likelihood, they'll be tweaked. Will there be a mute button? It's been talked about. In all likelihood, probably not. And don't forget that debate, the second one between the presidential candidates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, will be a town hall forum. That town hall forum will quite possibly change the entire atmosphere because it's much easier to bulldoze a moderator than it is an independent voter asking you a direct question. That's it for this episode of The Takeout. Our thanks to everyone on podcasts, on radio stations around the country, POTUS Channel 124 on Sirius XN, and of course, our beloved audience on CBSN. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. 
follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.